Welcome to the Social Exchange. Today's guest is Dr. Rick Barnett. Rick and I discuss psychedelic-assisted therapy and the hopeful future of this practice in the United States and specific to today's episode, the state of Vermont. Rick has been accepted to the class of 2020 at the California Institute for Integral Studies in their Certificate in Psychedelic Assisted Therapies and Research. Psilocybin, or psychedelic mushrooms, are on a fast track for FDA approval for a potential variety of mental health and addictive disorders. MDMA, ecstasy, has also been actively considered for approval for PTSD, and ketamine has recently been approved for chronic depression. Rick hopes that soon enough, he will be able to use his knowledge and credentials to help Vermont patients through this mode of therapy. Chip in to help Dr. Barnett cover the cost of his certification. He's got a GoFundMe page. You can find that in the show notes. And every contributor of $100 or more to his GoFundMe will receive a free signed copy of my book, Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy. And speaking of contributions, I'll remind you that this show was funded solely by our contributors. So please consider chipping in and adding your name to the list of other generous contributors to our work. You can make a one-time donation via PayPal at the PayPal link in the show notes. Or you can make a donation of $2 or more to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the social exchange. Again, patreon.com slash the social exchange. Thank you to all of our current Patreon subscribers. First, thank you to my family members who believe in and contribute to the work that I do. My father, Thomas Rhodes, my mother, Linda Rhodes, and my mother and father-in-law, i.e. my second set of parents, Pete and Susan Matthew. Thanks also to Susan Lennon, James Stacks, Chris, Leon Nahufahu, Sherry Chandler, D.D. Stout, Christopher Hanlon, Andre Pompel, Carter Vermont, Rick Barnett, who is our guest today, Anna Merle, Inigo, John Holt, Layla, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean, Regina, Tim, Tucker, Christian, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane, and Trevor. And to add your name to this list, visit patreon.com slash the social exchange. Now, please enjoy today's episode with Dr. Rick Barnett. I'm here with my arch nemesis, Dr. Rick Barnett. I'm just kidding about that, by the way. If you've ever followed the podcast before, you'll know that Rick is now, on this day, my most featured guest, uh, just, just in front of Johan Hari and Michael Shermer. So... Congratulations for being most featured on the social exchange. You win nothing. Wow, that is, but, that is but, impressive. But we will have a robust conversation. I'll set it up. You are going to, you're undertaking a journey to be trained on how to use psychedelic drugs in effective psychotherapies. There's so much to unpack about that because obviously that's not something that happens in Vermont right now. But you're a practicing psychologist in Vermont. So tell me a little bit about how you're interested in that and um, what you hope to do. Yeah, I'm super excited about this opportunity. There's an awesome training program in California through the California Institute on Integral Studies called the Certificate in Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy and Research. 
And I learned about it after hearing a talk by Michael Pollan, who people know wrote a book, came out a couple of years ago, called How to Change Your Mind. Mm. I saw him at an American Psychological Association conference give a talk on his book and the topic in general. At that point, I'd already been intrigued by the growing awareness around psychedelics, psychedelic research. And I found this program, and I was like, I have to do this, because... I have a personal history with psychedelics. I have a long professional career so far. Well, I think it's pretty long. It's going to be a hell of a lot longer, too. Career in mental health and addiction. And this seemed to sort of merge these two worlds uh, quite well. And I just was so fascinated by the fact that there's so much research coming out now, and there's so many clinical applications potentially for using these medicines, these psychedelic drugs, psychedelic molecules to help people overcome various situations, and we'll, we can talk about that. Personal history with psychedelics. Care to explain, or, or are you willing to do that? Yes, I am willing okay. to do that, okay. yeah. Please. To, uh, you know, as a young person, people know that I'm in long-term recovery from addiction, and what I would say when I went into rehab, one of the questions I ask is, what's your drug of choice? What's your drug of choice? And my drug of choice was always pot alcohol acid. I would always say pot alcohol acid because I smoked a lot of weed when I was a kid, I drank a lot, and I used a lot of hallucinogens, and that seemed to be my go-to drugs of choice. When I got into recovery, you know, it's a funny story. If you don't mind, I'll get into it. One thing that came across early on, I was in rehab, and uh, a guy came up to me in rehab. He's like, Rick, Rick, you're a guy that's done a lot of psychedelics. Don't you think all this stuff we're learning about, like the 12 steps and recovery, like, don't you think we could just, like, like meditate and, and or just, like, take a bunch of acid and we can figure it all out and we'll be transformed by that? And I was like, at the time, I was like, no, no. I tried that. I did it for years trying to figure out, like, go on a spiritual quest or whatever. Mm. And very quickly, it turned into just, you know recreational use be like out of control and uh, the whole spiritual side of things or the transformative or transcendent nature of it was completely lost so in early recovery I was like absolutely not that is like the, the wrong direction to go in you use it sort of destructively like into oblivion right. rather than ever picking up on the subtle or, or maybe overt a spiritual sort of mind-changing or altering aspect of it. Right, but the, but the most important part is that when I first took LSD as a very young person, I had a profound experience that I don't think ever left me. And I think it's, I, this sounds funny, but I think it is responsible for why I got into recovery and I've stayed into recover, in recovery this whole time, stemming all the way back to my psychedelic experiences before I even really developed a problem with alcohol or other substances. It, it basically opened my mind to seeing the world in a very different way. So when I got into recovery and I was learning about recovery principles, AA principles, things like that, I was like, oh, this is so consistent with the stuff that I was experiencing when I was first using psychedelics. So that really attracted me to wanting to stay in recovery and learn more about recovery-related principles. The, the, the harmony between the two is, is fascinating. And in fact, a lot of the research being done now is using substances like LSD, like psilocybin, to help people with alcoholism, with substance use disorders, to try to see if you can work with them to shift their mindset in such a way that there are other things that seem so much more compelling about life that uh, you don't need to use alcohol or drugs as much. Similar to the Life Process Program, 
instead of focusing on the drug itself, you focus on the individual and their experience and what are their values and what are the cool ways in which you can live life and do different things. And I think there's something about hallucinogens that just, and they say this, like opens up ways of thinking of yourself, the world, your beliefs, everything differently than you had historically. And that is, you know, an incredible opportunity to change and grow. I'm somewhat convinced that that is the case. I'm more excited about learning, I guess, through you and and through the new studies that are coming up, Johns Hopkins being one institution that's really, has been so prolific now about research on psychedelic drugs. I'm really interested to learn what's not true. A lot of people have bought in wholeheartedly to the fact that psychedelics are mind-altering in some sort of ameliorative way. And I worry about that because I worry that people are going to give credit for psychedelics doing more than they can actually do. Mm -hmm. And that would actually hurt the case for someone like you who's trying to use them in a practical way, in a true, logical, well-tested way. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand on that? Is, Is that gray in your mind, or do you feel like you have a sense of how they do work and how they don't work, or what is true about them, or what is being said about them that maybe isn't true? I have a great concrete story about that that just came up recently, as recently as Monday night. I would say that it's very clear, and I want to just say anybody listening, I'm learning about this stuff as we go. I have a history, personal and professional, in terms of my own experiences, as I've talked about, but also knowing a little bit about pharmacology, psychopharmacology, and psychotherapy and the applications in an appropriate way. I can say that there's a lot of, just like with I think anything coming out in the research, evidence-based research, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of headlines. There's a lot of stuff that people, even the way I was probably talking about it a minute ago, sort of talking very glowingly about the positive potential for psychedelics. And I think it really does need to be tempered quite a bit. Now, the story that I was going to tell you was that in my growing experiences here, I've been in contact with people who actually do offer some sort of underground type psychedelic retreat experiences. And I had a fascinating conversation with somebody recently who's done this over with over four or 500 people, you know, offer psilocybin um, retreats. And he was very clear. It was just fascinating. He was very clear. He's like, Rick, people think this is some sort of panacea. Like they're just going to, they've been struggling with depression for years and they've tried everything and they're, they think they're going to come to this retreat Uh, take the psilocybin, and somehow it's just going to magically change their Mm. overall orientation and outlook on life, and they're going to feel better. And he said, you know, people just don't understand. There's there's an experience that you have on the psilocybin or on the hallucinogen, but it's really what you do with that information afterwards that makes all the difference. And one of the key components that I'm learning about and people who know this have heard about is that this is not intended to be some sort of haphazard, recreational, self-administered, self-medication kind of thing. Although people can do that if they want, and people have done that. I, I did that when I was younger. This is really about a preparation phase where people, believe it or not, either microdose before they actually go on. We can talk about microdosing. Mm-hmm. Microdose before they go on these retreats so they're used to the experience. That's like some sort of preparation. But really, in a clinical way, you sit down with a therapist or a, a skilled professional and you do a thorough assessment. You develop trust and connection, unconditional trust and connection to the person or the group that's helping you with this experience. Then you have the psychedelic experience. And then there's integration period where afterwards you're following up with that same person or group of people, and you're talking about your experiences while you were 
under the influence of the psychedelics. And that could be days, weeks, months later where you're just processing all the new awarenesses that you had. It's, it's very different to do it that way than to just, you know, go away for the weekend and, you know, take a lot of hallucinogens and kind of go out of your mind for a little while and then just go back to work and, you know, sure. sort, sort through it on your own. So it's a very specific protocol. And I'm, I'm much more eager to learn about those, the standardized processes that go into delivering this kind of treatment in a, in a really robust way. I want to get into how, just how you're going to be learning about that. I know a few people who have, who swear by their psychedelic experiences changing their lives for good. And I always wonder when they talk to me, were you just ready for that to happen? You know, did you, I think like your, like your friend or your colleague was saying, did, did this person just try everything and was so fed up with all the things they've tried, decided wholeheartedly invested in the fact that they're going to change, then use psychedelics and then had a confirmation bias. It's like, well, yeah, they're ready to kind of turn a leaf at that point. Similarly, I suppose that the studies that are being done around psychedelics and, have, and their potential use in therapy, I will have to parse that out as well. Like, would, would this robust therapy that's being done alongside psychedelics be just as effective without them? You're going to, I think you already mentioned it, California to an institute to get a certification to be able to prescribe. We're not able in Vermont or, I don't know, in the U.S., right, to prescribe psychedelics or to use psychedelics in a therapeutic setting yet, or am I wrong about that? You're absolutely correct. It's a class, it's a Schedule One substance, just like cannabis, believe it or not, federally, <laughs> and uh, cocaine and other, other substances are all in the Schedule One category, which says that it's a high abuse potential and there's no really recognized medicinal use for it, which is total crap. Mm. And there's been thousands of studies on the medicinal benefits of LSD, believe it or not, and uh, you know MDMA is actually probably going to be FDA approved as a treatment for PTSD starting in 2021, and that's part of the training that I'm going through to learn about ecstasy, MDMA, and uh, so no, you can't. I mean, the only way to they're able to help train people is that there's a heavy research component. There's all kinds of regulatory processes that people have to go through to get approval to run studies using psilocybin, using psychedelics, using MDMA. So I know that MAPS, which is called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS is a very well-known, growing organization. They're partnered with the California Institute on Integral Studies. They have many research arms across the United States. You mentioned Johns Hopkins, University of Wisconsin, uh, many other places that are doing these studies, even private institutions that have um, some regulatory pieces in place so they are able to administer psychedelics to subjects who volunteer to be part of the studies. That's the only way that it can be done. It, it, you're not, I'm not going to a clinic where they're just doing psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and learning how to do it. It's part of a research project. Let's cut to a clip about the place that you're going to visit and attend. And we'll talk about it when we get back. In these studies, psilocybin and MDMA has been found to decrease existential anxiety and angst if they're at end of life. And for addictions, it has decreased rates of relapse to, in an unprecedented way. I 
person that is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder reaches a certain threshold where they continue to experience suffering. The therapies that are being researched, they have demonstrated conclusively that you can get almost a total remission of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms through the use of MDMA combined with proper preparation and follow-up. It's called the Certificate Program in Psychedelic-Assisted Therapies and Research, and it trains students to use psychedelic-assisted therapies primarily with psilocybin and MDMA, FDA-approved medicines for research in the United States. The second goal for us with our students is to be available for expanded access compassionate care programs later on as psilocybin and MDMA's last iterations of clinical studies are going on all over this country for them to be in a clinic giving psychedelic assisted therapy to patients. I work with communities of color and adults who are victims of crime. I think about how we can start to offer people who have severe trauma in their lives, a possibility of a different kind of healing. The faculty is world class. Charles Grob and Ralph Metzner and Michael and Annie Methover. It's mind boggling. It feels like a torch is being passed and this group is fantastic. The teachers are fantastic. Everything about it, I can't say enough good things about this program. The center is a pioneering program, training what might be the vanguard of a psychedelic research movement that will be able to optimize delivery of treatment and hopefully have a big impact on the evolution of the health and mental health field and on our culture at large. The future that we're most excited about in the center is to be in an FDA-approved study that would utilize our graduates, all these licensed professionals who would like to do this, here at CIIS. We're very excited to try and do that next, so that's our next future endeavor. So that was so people uh, don't think we're just a bunch of hippies talking about psychedelics. Right. Um, you were mentioning that the FDA is fast-tracking or expediting the process of, psychod uh, of uh, psychedelic mushrooms um, becoming legal to operate the w clinically, right? Yes, yes. There's been enough evidence so far, I believe, that has convinced the FDA to fast-track psilocybin as a molecule molecule. Now, now keep in mind that the way these studies are best conducted, again, to standardize, standardize, standardize. And one of the standardization processes is not just the set and the setting in which these therapies take place. Set meaning mindset, right? Set meaning mindset, meaning the interpersonal dynamics that are going on between the patient and the therapist and the, and the whatever the organization is that's doing it. So the, the mindset, the culture set, the, the climate set. Um, and the setting is the environment that it's that is taking place in, and the dosage has to be standardized because you know with cannabis, for example, you can have various levels of CBD and THC and all that kind of stuff. Now with psilocybin, you can actually isolate the psilocybin molecule. So I believe what they're using is a pharmaceutical version of psilocybin. It's not just mm. 
clients or patients using, you know, eight grams of mushrooms or whatever. They're just eating the mushrooms and seeing what it does. They're, it's a very standardized dose. They have, you know, 2.3 milligrams, uh, you know, 6.8, you know, all these specific dosages. So they're comparing low dose and high dose and placebos and all. So there's a standardized dose, and that's really important. Let's talk about that purity aspect for a second. I, I was talking to Ben Westhoff, who is, who, uh, Ben Westhoff is the author of a book called Fentanyl, Inc., he went uh, just rogue. A great podcast, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I was talking to him about his book, and then I was reading it. I was like, wait a minute. He just went by himself to China, and he went undercover. You know, it, it was like from a comedy movie right. where they would say, uh, hey, you're not a journalist, are you? No. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he learned a ton about how they manufacture the ingredients to make drugs in China, then send them from China to places that don't mind putting those ingredients together to make the kinds of drugs that are uh, potentially dangerous in the U.S. And then, of course, those get stomped on, so to speak, uh, mixed with other things, again, once they're in the U.S. Right. So insofar as psychedelics are dangerous, most of those risks, I'm sure, you'll educate me if I'm wrong at all about this, come from not knowing what's in them as opposed to being pharmaceutically tested, legal, knowing that they're pure. I think that, yes, I think purity is always going to be an issue. But with psilocybin mushrooms grown, widely available in many areas. And I, dose. I, and do, like, I, don't, I think the safety profile from a, from a physiological perspective is, is it's super safe. I mean, these, yeah, these drugs yeah. are super safe. This is not fentanyl. This is not cocaine. This is not stuff that's being cut. Now, with LSD, I remember back in the day when I was using LSD as a kid, uh, you'd always hear about, ooh, this has a lot of strychnine in it, or it feels a speedy or something like that. So I don't know what LSD can be adulterated with. But my, and I don't know what quality LSD is out there right now. I, haven't. I was thinking more like LSD and MDMA more than psychedelic mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, MDMA. I mean, you know, dancesafe.org is a very well-known organization that used to have uh, uh, MDMA test kits at raves to sort of see if it was MDA or MDMA or some other version of it or just a caffeine pill or something. So, yes, I think, again, the pharmaceutical-grade version of ecstasy or MDMA Psilocybin, I really don't think you can adulterate psilocybin. I don't know. You can get a bad batch of mushrooms, I guess. I don't, again, this is stuff I'm, I'm going to learn, but people who grow mushrooms on their own, and certainly the research that's being done with pharmaceutical uh, capsules of psilocybin, that's, that's all pure and standardized. That's what I'm saying, is that there is a benefit to this process of it becoming legal to practice mm -hmm. in that, there's just no question about purity and no question about dose, really, right. or very limited question, I guess. Right. So, yeah, I think with the psilocybin being fast-tracked, uh, MDMA is supposed to be maybe FDA-approved as early as 2021 for PTSD. Mm. That's a different—that's a synthetic uh, drug. You know, that's a different molecule altogether than, than a plant medicine. Um, but it's still loosely considered in the hallucinogen class, although it's really not pharmacologically. It's more a combination of— uh, some sort of serotonin, dopamine, active drug, uh, and psilocybin's very different. You know, it does. It's very serotonergic. All the uh, all the 
hallucinogens, ayahuasca, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, they're all very serotonergic. They act on the serotonin system, but in a very different way than what we think of as SSRIs. And that's a very important point, and that's something that we learn about a lot as I'm reading and learning about this area. You know, one experience with psilocybin, or maybe just a few experiences with psilocybin once every year, once every six months, something like that, is very different than the current mental health medication model where, you know, people are prescribed Zoloft or uh, Fluoxetine or Mm. Celexa where you take it every day and there's side effects and, you know, it's difficult to come off of if you choose to come off of it. And it's, it's a totally, totally different way of treating mental health. It's revolutionary, really, when it comes to like, oh, you mean I just go somewhere, meet with someone for a few sessions, I have this one experience with this chemical, and then I have weeks or months later where I talk about the experience and I integrate it into my life. You know, I don't have to take something every day to treat my mood instability or to help me with my drinking or my drug use. You know, with buprenorphine or methadone, you have to take the chemical every day because you're staving off withdrawal. You know, it's very helpful to save lives so that people are are less inclined to go out and maybe use fentanyl or use other opioids. With this, you know, once once if you if it were to be used for opioids, which is not necessarily recommended, I'm not saying someone should go out and use hallucinogens to get over there. It's been it's on the table habits. already. It's you didn't have table. to bring right. it up. Right. I don't I don't mean to say that that's uh, because pharmacologically they're totally different yeah. experiences. Yeah. But but you know if someone were to you use naltrexone, for example, so all the opioids are out of their system for a month or a couple of months. Explain what naltrexone is. Just for naltrexone is an opioid blocker. So uh, Vivitrol or Revia, which is a naltrexone, it, it basically binds to the opioid receptor. So somebody who tries to use an opioid really can't get high. It doesn't, doesn't produce the effect they're looking for. But if they're off opioids altogether and they're looking to sort of change their thoughts and their beliefs and their ideas about who they are in the world and their, their values, and they would go and try a psychedelic experience, that actually might tip the scales in favor of a very different trajectory for a recovery process because something has really shifted. And I believe, again, this is going back to my own experience, I believe that some people who attend 12-step meetings actually have that transformative process through the, through meeting people and thinking about their their life and their values in different ways. And I believe that's what happens with the Life Process Program. People sort of look at their lives differently, look at the things that they value, how do they want to live their life, and a, a sober or recovery-oriented lifestyle becomes much more attractive uh, than the addiction lifestyle, even though the addiction can always pull us back. Uh, and so hallucinogens, I think, are fit right in with all of that stuff very well. This is crucial, I think. You're, you're making a distinction between what we're used to, at least in America, with respect to prescribed drugs for things like depression, mental illness, and addiction. Let's, let's take methadone, say, where somebody is taking methadone every single day. I mean, I know a lot of people who have to take a bus from who know, God knows how far away every morning to make sure that they get their dose of methadone in the morning, and that keeps them stable. So there's this difference between the drug giving someone stability while they can do the work versus with psychedelics, I think you're saying the idea, I think you're saying the idea is that someone can have an experience one time, map that experience onto living, and then return and talk about what life was like, perhaps have another sort of psychedelic experience or mind-altering way of thinking about things, and all through, all, all while engaging in therapy. So it's sort of a more uh, natural way of going about 
rethinking life and, and what's valuable to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's fascinating. It's just a really different different model. And uh, that's, again, part of the reason why I'm so excited about this is because it combines so many things that I've been interested in personally and professionally. I love psychotherapy. I love treating and working with people with mental health issues. I love addiction. I love treating people with addiction in, in different ways, whether it's a harm reduction approach or a 12-step approach or abstinence-based approach or just a lifestyle improvement approach. And I love I, I, I live recovery myself, and uh, I believe in recovery uh, principles and, and, and change and the sort of the existential or spiritual side of things without getting too woo-woo about spirituality. Like, it's, mm. it's a really important component of our lives for a lot of people. It's not for everybody. I know that for a fact. Again, going back to what we were talking about before, people have this expectation that they may try this psychedelic experience, this treatment model, and that's supposed to, you know, cure their depression or cure their anxiety, and it doesn't always happen that way. Whether there's a confirmation bias going into it where people are so hyped up, it's like when someone says, oh, this is a really good movie, you got to go see this movie, right. and you're like, oh my God, this could be such a great movie, and you're kind of like, that movie wasn't that great, actually, because you were all hyped up about it. You'll learn if there's a confirmation bias or not. You'll be learning about things like that, but, but at the very least, if you learn or decide it on your own, well, okay, maybe there is, or maybe you're unsure, the risk is much less, yeah. you know, because you're not... You're not um, making somebody become wedded to a daily maintained dose of something in order to survive, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So let's get away. You said you don't want to get too woo-woo. Yeah. <laughs> let's bring it back from woo-woo to uh, something concrete. You obviously want to do something with your certification. Uh, tell me about what you'd like to do and how you'd like to apply it and when you think you might be able to. Yeah, I don't know when or if it's going to be possible in Vermont. I, I know that there is a bill, Representative Brian China and a couple other reps uh, signed on to a bill that is not planning to be taken up for any, any discussion anytime soon, but H878, I think it is, that basically decriminalizes all plant medicines, uh, including ayahuasca, psilocybin, mushrooms, uh, a couple others listed in there. <clears throat> Again, that I think was just put out there to sort of get people thinking about it. There's a massive movement right now to decriminalize possession of buprenorphine or suboxone. Mm -hmm. So my argument is like, why are we going to decriminalize suboxone, which is, you know, um, probably as dangerous or... Um, whatever has whatever stigma associated with it that, as psilocybin is. So why don't we just decriminalize psilocybin as well? There's a there's a movement now to decriminalize. Well, psilocybin has been decriminalized in a couple of states and in Denver. But uh, my goal would be that at some point, if it were to be legal to administer these types of treatments in Vermont, I would totally be on board. I want to be one of the first people to be able to do that. I'd set up a, a system much like I hope what I'm going to be learning in California right here in Vermont. Where you would be teaching? I would be teaching therapists how to do it and also oh. offering the treatment. And is this certification in California going to be sufficient to be able to offer treatment once it's available legal? Or, or you, you'd have to know the legal ramp. Uh, I'm not really sure. I think that my understanding is that this is a part of a broader training for MAPS. We talked about MAPS before, yeah. so MAPS is affiliated with this. I don't think this meets all the requirements, certainly for the MAPS MDMA ecstasy protocol, but it's going to be a large part of it. So whether it, it, it certifies me to be able to deliver this once it's legal to do so or not remains to be seen. So again, I'm at the very front end of this. It's super exciting. I, I can't believe I'm actually 
going to do this. And I think it's really uh, transformative, not only for the mental health field, for addiction, but for society. It's, it's, it's potential is amazing. Yeah, this is really cool. You said you're going to be the fifth cohort to ever go out there, right? Yeah, the fifth cohort of this class. I know there's other training programs, I think at NYU and UCLA, the Hefter Institute, but this is the one, this is one of the well-known ones that's tried and true, and I'm the fifth class to go through it. Yeah. That's cool. When you started talking about the, the fact that you were going to do this, I got really excited about it, so I wanted to make sure I talked to you. I think I host like 4,000 podcasts now, so this will probably stream on all of them somewhere. That's awesome. I'm <clears> so excited. Hopefully, yeah. it's helped to raise awareness. You know, it's not, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a growing movement, and people are getting really excited about it. Again, we need to temper our enthusiasm a little bit. I'm, I'm cautious, uh, cautiously optimistic about it, but it can go sideways very quickly, as it did in the 1960s, as we know. And we really don't want that to happen again. This is a serious endeavor to, to get it right this time and, and really help a lot of people. Let's just, I, I want to end there. We have like a minute, less than a minute left or something like that. But um, what do you think, what would be the downsides of being unduly optimistic about psychedelics as opposed to getting down and just being practical and, you know, being as skeptical as possible? Well, I think the downsides really is uh, that when you start to ingest these molecules and start to have these experiences, people can get very exuberant and get very... um, for lack of a better word, trippy about their their experiences, and that can be vastly promoted in all kinds of sort of wild and maybe difficult to understand ways. And if there's too much of that out there, then it's just going to go down the same road that it did in the '60s. And you know, Terence McKenna is which is what? Let's just talk a little bit about that. Well, Timothy Leary, for example, yeah. in the in the 1960s, he really uh, took it to another level. I'm not saying there's anything bad about that necessarily, right. but it did change the whole cultural mindset around the the clinical utility of these sure. of these uh, chemicals and then Terence McKenna also another person in the 1980s and 90s who is just an amazing mind and if you listen to any of Terence McKenna's stuff it's so fascinating but again it has the risk of sounding a little bit you know out there new agey yeah, and, and people yeah. you know you need to bring it down to sort of bring it down to earth in a way but also still allow it to be um, as mystical and hard to grasp as it actually is. It's just sort of a, it's balancing those two is a little challenging. All right, well, you're going to do the work to help parse that for everybody else around here, and good luck with everything. Thank you. But wait, Rick, isn't it expensive to go do all this crap? <laughs> it is um, it's gonna, there's going to be a lot of costs incurred, I, I suppose. Yes, yes. I, I did put out a GoFundMe campaign to help, not only help with the cost of the training for me, but really the spirit of that is to bring this back to Vermont so I can educate people in Vermont, offer free trainings and seminars and workshops and public education opportunities so that people can raise their awareness. And so that's what the GoFundMe campaign is really about, Not less about the tuition for the program, more about what I do with it once I have it and can bring it back to Vermont. If people want to donate, great, you should. Check out the link. It'll be in the show notes. And if people donate $100 or more between now and March 15th, then you'll get a free signed copy of my book with Stanton Peel called Outgrowing Addiction. Rick, thanks so much for doing this, and we'll talk again when this is all through. Yeah, thank you, Zach. That was awesome.